Chapter Twenty Six of the Old Curiosity Shop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Old Curiosity Shop by Charles Dickens. Chapter Twenty Six. Almost broken-hearted, Nell withdrew with the schoolmaster from the bedside and returned to his cottage. In the midst of her grief and tears, she was yet careful to conceal their real cause from the old man, for the dead boy had been a grandchild, and left but one aged relative to mourn his premature decay. She stole away to bed as quickly as she could, and when she was alone, gave free vent to the sorrow with which her breast was overcharged. But the sad scene she had witnessed was not without its lesson of content and gratitude, of content with the lot which left her health and freedom, and gratitude that she was spared to the one relative and friend she loved, and to live and move in a beautiful world, when so many young creatures, as young and full of hope as she, were stricken down and gathered to their graves. How many of the mounds in that old churchyard, where she had lately strayed, grew green above the graves of children! And though she thought as a child herself, and did not perhaps sufficiently consider to what a bright and happy existence those who die young are born, and how in death they lose the pain of seeing others die around them, bearing to the tomb some strong affection of their hearts, which makes the old die many times in one long life, still she thought wisely enough to draw a plain and easy moral from what she had seen that night, and to store it deep in her mind. Her dreams were of the little scholar, not coffined and covered up, but mingling with angels and smiling happily. The sun, darting his cheerful rays into the room, awoke her, and now there remained but to take leave of the poor schoolmaster and wander forth once more. By the time they were ready to depart, school had begun. In the darkened room the din of yesterday was going on again. A little sobered and softened down, perhaps, but only a very little, if at all. The schoolmaster rose from his desk and walked with them to the gate. It was with a trembling and reluctant hand that the child held out to him the money which the lady had given her at the races for her flowers. Faltering in her thanks as she thought how small the sum was, and blushing as she offered it. But he bade her put it up, and stooping to kiss her cheek, turned back into his house. They had not gone half a dozen paces when he was at the door again. The old man retraced his steps to shake hands, and the child did the same. "'Good fortune and happiness go with you,' said the poor schoolmaster. "'I am quite a solitary man now. If you ever pass this way again, you will not forget the little village school.' "'We shall never forget it, sir,' rejoined Nell, "'nor ever forget to be grateful to you for your kindness to us.' "'I have heard such words from the lips of children very often,' said the schoolmaster, shaking his head and smiling thoughtfully. "'But they were soon forgotten. I had attached one young friend to me, the better friend for being young. But that's over. God bless you.' They bade him farewell very many times and turned away, walking slowly and often looking back, until they could see him no more. At length they had left the village far behind, and even lost sight of the smoke among the trees. They trudged onward now, 
at a quicker pace, resolving to keep the main road and go wherever it might lead them. But main roads stretch a long, long way. With the exception of two or three inconsiderable clusters of cottages which they passed, without stopping, and one lonely roadside public house where they had some bread and cheese, this highway had led them to nothing. Late in the afternoon, and still lengthened out, far in the distance, the same dull, tedious, winding course that they had been pursuing all day. As they had no resource, however, but to go forward, they still kept on, though at a much slower pace, being very weary and fatigued. The afternoon had worn away into a beautiful evening, when they arrived at a point where the road made a sharp turn and struck across a common. On the border of this common and close to the hedge which divided it from the cultivated fields, a caravan was drawn up to rest, upon which, by reason of its situation, they came so suddenly that they could not have avoided it if they would. It was not a shabby, dingy, dusty cart, but a smart little house upon wheels, with white dimity curtains festooning the windows, and window shutters of green picked out with panels of a staring red, in which happily contrasted colours the whole concern shone brilliant. Neither was it a poor caravan drawn by a single donkey or emaciated horse, for a pair of horses in pretty good condition were released from the shafts and grazing on the frowsy grass. Neither was it a gypsy caravan, for at the open door, graced with a bright brass knocker, sat a Christian lady, stout and comfortable to look upon, who wore a large bonnet trembling with boughs, and that it was not an unprovided or destitute caravan, was clear from this lady's occupation, which was the very pleasant and refreshing one of taking tea. The tea things, including a bottle of rather suspicious character and a cold knuckle of ham, were set forth upon a drum covered with a white napkin, and there, as if at the most convenient round table in all the world, sat this roving lady taking her tea and enjoying the prospect. It happened that at that moment the lady of the caravan had her cup, which that everything about her might be of a stout and comfortable kind was a breakfast cup to her lips, and that having her eyes lifted to the sky in her enjoyment of the full flavour of the tea, not unmingled possibly with just the slightest dash or gleam of something out of the suspicious bottle, but this is mere speculation and not a distinct matter of history, it happened that being thus agreeably engaged, she did not see the travellers when they first came up. It was not until she was in the act of getting down the cup and drawing a long breath after the exertion of causing its contents to disappear that the lady of the caravan beheld an old man and a young child walking slowly by and glancing at her proceedings with eyes of modest but hungry admiration. Hey! cried the lady of the caravan, scooping the crumbs out of her lap and swallowing the same before wiping her lips. Yes, to be sure. Who won the helter-skelter plight, child? Won what, ma'am? asked Nell. The helter-skelter plight at the races, child. The plate that was run for on the second day. On the second day, ma'am? Second day, yes, second day, repeated the lady with an air of impatience. Can't you say who won the helter-skelter plate when you're asked the question civilly? I don't know, ma'am. Don't know, repeated the lady of the caravan. Why, you were there. I saw you with my own eyes. Nell was not a little alarmed to hear this, 
supposing that the lady might be intimately acquainted with the firm of Short and Codlin, but what followed tended to reassure her. "'And very sorry I was,' said the lady of the caravan, "'to see you in the company with a punch, a low, practical, vulgar wretch, that people should scorn to look at.' "'I was not there by choice,' returned the child. "'We didn't know our way, and the two men were very kind to us, and let us travel with them.' "'Do you... Uh, do you know them, ma'am?' "'No, em, child,' cried the lady of the caravan in a sort of shriek. "'Know them, but you're young and inexperienced, and that's your excuse for asking such a question. Do I look as if I knowed them? Does the caravan look as if it did know them?' "'No, ma'am, no,' said the child, fearing she had committed some grievous fault. "'I beg your pardon.' It was granted immediately though the lady still appeared much ruffled and discomposed by the degrading supposition. The child then explained that they had left the races on the first day, and were travelling to the next town on that road, where they purposed to spend the night. As the countenance of the stout lady began to clear up, she ventured to inquire how far it was. The reply, which the stout lady did not come to, until she had thoroughly explained that she went to the races on the first day in a gig, and— as an expedition of pleasure, and that her presence there had no connection with any matters of business or profit, was that the town was eight miles off. This discouraging information a little dashed the child, who could scarcely repress a tear as she glanced along the darkening road. Her grandfather made no complaint, but he sighed heavily as he leaned upon his staff and vainly tried to pierce the dusty distance. The lady of the caravan was in the act of gathering her tea equipage, together preparatory to clearing the table, but noting the child's anxious manner she hesitated and stopped. The child curtsied, thanked her for her information, and giving her hand to the old man had already got some fifty yards or so away, when the lady of the caravan called to her to return. "'Come nearer, nearer still,' said she, beckoning to her to ascend the steps. "'Are you hungry, child?' Not very, but we are tired, and it's—it is a long way. Well, hungry or not, you had better have some tea, rejoined her new acquaintance. I suppose you are agreeable to that, old gentleman? The grandfather humbly pulled off his hat and thanked her. The lady of the caravan then bade him come up the steps likewise, but the drum proving an inconvenient table for two, then descended again, and sat upon the grass where she handed down to them the tea-tray, the bread and butter, the knuckle of ham, and, in short, everything of which she had partaken herself, except the bottle which she had already embraced an opportunity of slipping into her pocket. "'Set a mart near the hind whales, child, that's the best place,' said their friend, superintending the arrangements from above. "'Now hand up the teapot for a little more hot water, and a pinch of fresh tea,' and then both of you ate and drink as much as you can, and don't spare anything. That's all I ask of you. They might perhaps have carried out the lady's wish, if it had been less freely expressed, or even if it had not been expressed at all. But as this direction relieved them from any shadow of delicacy or uneasiness, they made a hearty meal and enjoyed it to the utmost. While they were thus engaged, the lady of the caravan alighted on the earth, and with her hands clasped behind her, and her large bonnet trembling excessively, 
walked up and down in a measured tread and very stately manner, surveying the caravan from time to time with an air of calm delight, and deriving particular gratification from the red panels and the brass knocker. When she had taken this gentle exercise for some time, she sat down upon the steps and called, George! whereupon a man in a carter's frock, who had been so shrouded in a hedge up to this time as to see everything that passed without being seen himself, parted the twigs that concealed him, and appeared in a sitting attitude, supporting on his legs a baking-dish and a half-gallon stone-bottle, and bearing in his right hand a knife, and in his left a fork. "'Yes, missus,' said George. "'How did you find the cold pie, George?' "'It weren't a miss, mum.' "'And the beer?' said the lady of the caravan, with an appearance of being more interested in this question than the last. "'Is it passable, George?' "'It's more flatterer than it might be,' George returned. "'But it ain't so bad for all that.' To set the mind of his mistress at rest, he took a sip, amounting in quantity to a pint or thereabouts, from the stone bottle, and then smacked his lips, winked his eye, and nodded his head. No doubt with the same amiable desire he immediately resumed his knife and fork, as a practical assurance that the beer had wrought no bad effect upon his appetite. The lady of the caravan looked on approvingly for some time, and then said, "'Have you nearly finished?' "'Very nigh, ma'am.' And indeed, after scraping the dish all round with his knife and carrying the choice brown morsels to his mouth, and after taking such a scientific pull at the stone bottle that, by degrees almost imperceptible to the sight, his head went further and further back until he lay nearly at his full length upon the ground, this gentleman declared himself quite disengaged, and came forth from his retreat. "'I hope I haven't hurried you, George,' said his mistress, who appeared to have a great sympathy with his late pursuit. "'If you are,' returned the follower, wisely reserving himself for any favourable contingency that might occur, "'we must make up for it next time, that's all.' "'You are not a heavy load, George.' "'That's always what the ladies say.' replied the man, looking a long way round, as if he were appealing to nature in general against such monstrous propositions. If you see a woman a-driving, you'll always perceive that she never will keep her whip still. The horse can't go fast enough for her. If cattle have got their proper load, you never can persuade a woman that they'll not bear something more. What is the cause of this here? Would these two travellers make much difference to the horses if we took them with us? asked his mistress, offering no reply to the philosophical inquiry, and pointing to Nell and the old man, who were painfully preparing to resume their journey on foot. "'They'd make a difference in cause,' said George doggedly. "'Would they make much difference?' repeated his mistress. "'They can't be very heavy.' "'The white of the pair, ma'am,' said George, eyeing them with the look of a man who was calculating within half an ounce or so, would be a trifle under that of Oliver Cromwell. Nell was very much surprised that the man should be so accurately acquainted with the weight of one whom she had read of in books as having lived considerably before their time, but speedily forgot the subject in the joy of hearing that they were to go forward in the caravan for which she thanked its lady with unaffected earnestness. She helped with great readiness and alacrity to put away the tea-things and other matters that were lying about, and, the horses being by that time harnessed, mounted into the vehicle, followed by her delighted grandfather. 
Their patroness then shut the door and sat herself down by her drum at an open window, and, the steps being struck by George and stowed under the carriage, away they went, with a great noise of flapping and creaking and straining, and the bright brass knocker, which nobody ever knocked at, knocking one perpetual double knock of its own accord, as they jolted heavily along. End of chapter 26